Welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha, a podcast shared by David Roylance. This podcast is dedicated to guiding you to completely eliminate the discontent mind and the suffering it causes by attaining enlightenment. Learn and practice the teachings of Gotama Buddha that will guide you to fully attain a peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. To support this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha or visit buddhadailywisdom.com where you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online learning resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Now, here's our teacher to share more. Hello and welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha. Today is our group learning program where we'll be studying Chapter 5 in this book, Developing a Life Practice, The Path That Leads to Enlightenment. This chapter is titled The Eightfold Path, The Path for All Humans to Enlightenment. In this book titled Developing a Life Practice, this particular chapter is the life practice. The entire book is developing the life practice, but if you are going to boil down the Buddhist teachings to what is the one thing that I really need to be focusing on the most, it's the Eightfold Path, because this is the path to enlightenment. If you think about this path to enlightenment as becoming a better human being, And in order to become a better human being, we need to learn, we need to reflect, we need to practice certain teachings to move the mind to this enlightened mental state where it's peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. And if you connect this to perhaps creating a sculpture, if you had a big hunk of wood and you were needing different tools in order to create this sculpture, this beautiful piece of artwork, this better human being, you would need different tools. You would need a saw, an ax, maybe a hatchet, different types of knives, some maybe exacto knives and different things like this. Well, what the Buddha is doing throughout all of his teachings is he's providing you various tools in which to sculpt this better human being. And your choice to learn and practice these teachings as guidance is helping to move the mind to this enlightened mental state where you can chuck off these big pieces of wood that cause us problems in life so that we can then develop this life practice to be in such a way that we're not causing harm to others because as we cause harm to others, this harm comes back to us. So I'd like to thank all of you for joining today's class in order to learn how the Buddha taught this eightfold path to guide us towards becoming better human beings if that's what we choose to do. And in doing so, this entire path to enlightenment, it is not based on any kind of belief. This is the beauty in the Buddhist teachings is that it's not believe a bunch of things, hope that those are right, and then maybe someday find out that you're either right or wrong about those things. Instead, as you learn his teachings and you don't believe anything, you can independently discover the truth that his teachings are actually the truth and Through practicing those teachings, you acquire wisdom. And as you acquire this wisdom, training the mind, the discontentedness in the mind starts to diminish more and more and more, helping you to observe that the condition of the mind is indeed improving. Therefore, you're learning the truth. So things that once caused anger or frustration or irritation or guilt or shame or fear or any other discontent feelings 
gradually over time, this all starts to diminish. And you'll observe that through learning this path to enlightenment, that the mind moves into this more peaceful, calm, serene and content mind with joy. But in order to do that, you'll need to learn this path very, very closely. And I taught this path as part of kind of the preliminary classes at the beginning of this group learning program as three separate individual classes so that we could dive into each section of the eightfold path individually. Well, here in the book, it shows up as one chapter, but it's one of the largest chapters in the entire book because it's so crucial and it's so important. So today, what I'm gonna be doing is I'm gonna be covering this topic to a certain level of detail and allowing you to ask questions to elicit any information that you feel like you need in terms of what this path is and maybe how to apply it to your daily life. Because in that three-part series where I dove into each aspect of the Eightfold Path in detail, I spent a lot of time breaking down each individual step and talking about it in detail. And I wouldn't be able to go to that same level of detail in just one particular class. But what I can do is for anyone who hasn't learned in those three classes, is I can suggest for you to go back and learn in those classes. But if you're joining us today, you'll get to get kind of an overview of the Eightfold Path and then dive into any areas that you would like to explore further. If you have learned in those other classes, those three three-part classes that I taught, this is a great refresher for you. And now that you've had kind of about five or six weeks or so since I taught those classes, you should have had some experience in practicing the teachings from the Eightfold Path, and there might be a new set of questions that you have in order to seek clarification on those teachings. So this is a great time to get an overview, to get a refresh, to dive in deep into various aspects of the path. But most of this class is gonna really be guided by your questions. I've got a multitude of slides that I have put together, which I don't usually like to use a lot of slides, but because this path is so detailed, there's actually 26 slides in today's class, which is more slides than I've ever used in any class. I usually kind of have right around three or five because I don't like to use a whole lot of slides. I like to engage you guys in discussion, but some of these slides are really just going to be overviews of things that we've already discussed, even things that we discussed as recent as last week. So I'm going to be using these slides just to kind of prompt your memory about things that I've already taught in this program previously and to give any new students an opportunity to kind of see an overview. And where this time together can really be useful is that any clarification or any points of detail that you would like to dive into based on your own practice that you're maybe having struggles with or challenges with, you can ask those questions in today's class so that you can draw out any details that you need in order to develop your practice. So once again, thank you all for joining today's class. I would like to start off by just going into sharing kind of how the Buddha is really guiding us in all of his teachings, not just the Eightfold Path, but everything that he really taught is based on this natural law of gamma, of cause 
in effect or action and result. So when you learn the Eightfold Path or when you learn the five precepts or you learn anything about this entire path to enlightenment, you should always be thinking about the natural law of gamma, of cause and effect or action and result. That's the real focal point of what the Buddha is uncovering. In terms of pulling back and helping us to see the wisdom of these natural laws of existence and the wisdom of his teachings, what he's actually sharing is this natural law of gamma, of cause and effect or action and result. But there's been some misunderstanding around this natural law throughout society, throughout humanity, thinking that this is kind of like a mystical, magical thing that is punishment and rewards or maybe some entity that is controlling things or anything like this is not true. What the Buddha taught is this causal relationship of cause and effect or action and result. Essentially, that this natural law of gamma is this cause and effect where as we make decisions in our life, there are certain results that we experience from those decisions. And if our decisions are tainted with our own pollution of mind, like craving, anger, and ignorance, the unknowing of true reality, then those decisions are unwise decisions and they're going to produce unwholesome results because those unwise decisions are going to cause harm in the world. So therefore, there's going to be unwholesome results that come back to us. So what the Buddhist teachings are doing in this eightfold path and all the other teachings that he shares is helping you to understand how to not cause harm in the world. Because if you cause harm through any of your life practice, then this harm is going to come back to you. So through training your mind, you gain more control over the mind, but you also need to gain this wisdom in order to understand this cause and effect or action and result so that with this wisdom, you can make wiser and wiser choices that lead to wholesome results. And that's what this Eightfold Path is really doing, is exposing you to this natural law of gamma. I often talk about the Buddhist teachings as a whole, as the natural laws of existence. Well, inside of that is this natural law of gamma, which the Buddha is exposing us to. One way to think about the natural law of gamma is that it's your life, it's your decisions, and it's your results. But when we lack the wisdom of how to make wise decisions, when we have that ignorance or that unknowing of true reality, then the decisions that we make lead to unwholesome results. So the way that the Buddhist teachings work to move the mind to enlightenment is definitely through training the mind. But as you're gaining this wisdom, not believing the teachings, but learning, reflecting on them, and then practicing to see the truth for yourself, you will then understand the truth, acquire this wisdom, making wiser and wiser decisions, which lead to more and more wholesome results. For us to go through life without this wisdom, we lack that understanding and therefore we struggle and we have difficulties in the world because we're making decisions through craving, anger, and ignorance. Without this knowing of true reality, without understanding true reality, we make these harmful decisions. Even though we might have the very best intentions in the mind, when there's this ignorance or unknowing of true reality of these natural laws, then we're inadvertently making decisions that lead to unwholesome results 
and oftentimes we're very confused because we know that our intentions seem to be fairly pure but then when we start making decisions and putting things out into the world what comes back to us is not what we expected at all so as we talk today and discuss this eightfold path what the buddha is sharing with you and thus what i'm sharing with you is this natural law of gamma as part of these natural laws of existence the eightfold path is separated into three individual sections the three sections that the eightfold path is separated into is wisdom moral conduct and mental discipline there's eight individual steps going from right view right intention right speech right action right livelihood right effort right mindfulness and right concentration and these are categorized into three groupings or three categories making up wisdom moral conduct and mental discipline these three sections are helpful to kind of group these eight steps so that you understand what you're working on as these categories are categorizing these eight steps but what's important for a practitioner and a student to understand is that these eight steps are not things that you need to master one before you move on to the other you wouldn't actually be able to attain enlightenment that way the way that you should think of the eightfold path is think of them as eight individual dials whether it's on an electronic device or on a computer or any kind of appliance think of these eight steps as individual dials or turn dials or equalizers on a sound system and what you're doing is you're trying to dial in these individual dials closer and closer to practicing the middle way which we're going to be talking about next week you're dialing that in closer and closer so that you're practicing closer and closer to the ideal practice of what the buddha actually shares and in order to accomplish that you can't master one before you move on to the other if you're trying to get this beautiful sound out of speakers and you've got this eight dials you're going to be kind of tweaking each one of these eight dials individually until you hear the perfect sound come out of your speakers and that's what you're doing with the eightfold path is that you're gradually learning about the eightfold path and all the different steps along the eightfold path but then when you're implementing them you're implementing them really all at one time and you need to have an understanding of all of these different steps but at different times in your practice, as you're developing this practice, you might dive into one particular step or another and try to work on it more closely than others. So for example, meditation is part of the right concentration, which we're gonna talk about today. And oftentimes people start out with a meditation practice, and that's how we get started perhaps on this path. And you get to a certain level of detail in your practice, but then you also start to develop these other steps as well. And as you're kind of working on right speech or you're working on right action or some of these others, you might be working on those, but you're always also coming back to meditation and right concentration and tweaking that. So you're always kind of tweaking each one of these dials until you get to more and more and more perfection in your life practice. And the way that you know that you're progressing on this path and that you're seeing improvement is based on the condition of the mind as you learn reflect and practice this eightfold path closer and closer 
the focus and clarity of the mind, the concentration of mind increases. And you'll see the discontentedness decrease. So things that once caused anger in the mind, you'll notice that maybe you just get frustrated or irritated as a result of that same exact thing occurring that occurred previously. And then as you progress further, that same exact thing that used to cause anger or frustration or irritation, now maybe the mind is just annoyed. And then you progress further, you're continuing to tweak these dials, and the same exact thing happens. And now rather than anger, frustration, or irritation, the mind doesn't even experience any kind of annoyance either that the mind is just peaceful and it's unaffected by this thing that once used to cause so much anger in the mind. As you train your mind more and more, you observe that that same situation, there was no discontent feelings that arised whatsoever. And this is how you know that you're on the right path and what you're learning, what you're reflecting on and what you're practicing is truly working towards resolving this discontentedness in the mind and moving closer and closer to enlightenment. As part of this eightfold path, last week, we talked about the Four Noble Truths. This is part of right view in the Buddhist teachings. And in order to understand anything else that the Buddha taught on this path to enlightenment, a practitioner would need to understand right view, reflect on that and practice it very closely. So if you remember from the Four Noble Truths, we talked about discontentedness, the cause of discontentedness, the elimination of discontentedness, and the way leading to the elimination of discontentedness. What discontentedness is, is it's this three feelings where the mind experiences pleasant feelings, painful feelings, and feelings that are neither painful nor pleasant. This was shared with you as part of the three universal truths. And the discontentedness that all unenlightened beings experience is these are conditioned feelings. There's some experience that happens. There's something that the mind is craving or desiring or attached to. It wants something really bad. It's chasing after the objects of its affection. And when it acquires that thing or that situation or whatever it is that the mind is chasing after through this mental longing and strong eagerness, then the mind experiences these pleasant feelings that arise in the mind. But then if that mind doesn't get the objects of its affection, it experiences these painful feelings. And then sometimes there's these neither painful nor pleasant feelings like boredom, loneliness, shyness, and things like this. And this is what the unenlightened mind is going to experience, this bouncing around of discontentedness, where based on some conditions that it's experiencing, it will have these pleasant feelings based on, I got a new pair of shoes, I got a new job, I got a new friend or a new boyfriend or a new girlfriend, I got a raise at work, these pleasant feelings arise. But then those pleasant feelings start to fade and now the mind doesn't experience those pleasant feelings again and it's looking for the next thing to chase after in order to get back to those pleasant feelings. But because it keeps basing its inner feelings on some condition, it can never get to lasting satisfaction or lasting fulfillment because it keeps basing its inner feelings on some impermanent condition and it keeps chasing these pleasant feelings. When it gets those, it kind of temporarily reinforces that maybe you're doing the right thing by chasing after these pleasant feelings. 
But the mind forgets when those pleasant feelings fade a few days or a few weeks later and you end up with these painful feelings, the mind doesn't associate that those painful feelings are actually as a result of the mind chasing these pleasant feelings. And now when the mind gets into these painful feelings, in order to rid itself of those painful feelings, it now starts chasing after the next object of its affection in order to get those pleasant feelings back. And it's just this cycle that keeps going around and around and around until you come to understand the Buddhist teachings and you start understanding that the real problem here is craving desire attachment, this mental longing for something with a strong eagerness, the mind pulling in the direction for the objects of its affection, having expectations or wants. We also call it holding or grasping or clinging. This is where the mind is chasing after the objects of its affection. And this is the cause of the discontentedness that the mind is experiencing. This is explained through the Four Noble Truths in the summary version that I explain where everyone that is unenlightened will experience discontentedness. In that second noble truth, that discontentedness is caused by our own cravings, desires, attachments, because the mind wants everything to be permanent, when in fact, all these things in the world that the mind is chasing after is impermanent. So therefore, the mind keeps causing itself to be discontent over and over and over because it doesn't understand that it's actually causing itself discontentedness. So when we experience anger or frustration or irritation or annoyance or guilt or shame or fear or any other discontent feelings, this is actually being caused by your own craving, desire, attachments. But what we tend to do is we tend to blame other people or we tend to blame the circumstances in the situation rather than looking inward and realizing that it's our own craving, desire, attachments that are causing this discontentedness. And when we realize that we're the ones that are causing the discontentedness, this can be really liberating because if it's everyone else that's causing us to be angry, then you need to train 7.5 billion people in the world to do things your way or else every time they don't do things your way, you're going to be angry. And that would be exhausting to try to train 7.5 billion people to do things your way. And they're not going to remember to do it your way because once they learn to do it your way, then there's going to be someone else who wants them to do it their way and someone else and someone else and someone else. So what the Buddha is offering to you by way of guidance and teachings is that you just need to train one mind and that's your own mind. And if you can train your own mind to understand these natural laws of existence, then you can get to a place where you eliminate this craving, desire, attachments. You can eliminate this anger, hatred, and ill will. You can eliminate this ignorance or delusion or confusion, this unknowing of true reality and not knowing these natural laws of existence. And when you train the mind to eliminate these things and others, then the mind can reside peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy because it has removed all the conditions that are causing discontentedness. Through training on this path to enlightenment, the mind is purified to rid itself of all the conditions that are causing discontentedness. The second noble truth explaining to you that you are causing your own discontentedness can be really liberating because once you realize that you're causing all your own discontentedness, then the next thought becomes, 
Well, if I'm causing it, that means that I can eliminate it. You don't have to rely on training 7.5 billion people to eliminate your anger. Instead, you can eliminate your own anger through coming to understand through wisdom, without belief, through learning the truth and acquiring wisdom in these teachings, you can then train your mind to eliminate discontentedness by eliminating craving, desire, attachment. This is the third noble truth. And then the Buddha discusses the fourth noble truth as the path to eliminate discontentedness is the eightfold path. And that's what we're discussing today, but it's right view that really sets the mind to understand what the true problem is. And you can have this breakthrough to have this view. And rather than think that other people are causing your anger or frustration or any of your discontentedness, you can observe and realize without belief, but through independent verification that you're causing your own discontentedness. The way that you do that is through reflection. You take the last situation that you were angry or frustrated or irritated or any of these other discontent feelings and you look inward and you say, okay, well, what was it that the mind was craving? What was the desire? What was the attachment? What was the mental longing? What was the yearning? What was the strong eagerness? What was the mind craving to be permanent that caused this experience of anger to cause these feelings of frustration to arise in the mind. And when you look at that objectively, whether that was today that you got angry or yesterday or sometime last week, and you look at that closely, you can see through your own independent verification that you indeed caused your own anger. And when you see that with true reality, then you understand that, aha, I can eliminate this because you've seen independent verification that you're causing your own anger. That then allows you to acquire wisdom that you're the one causing it. And now with right view, it sets you up on the whole rest of this path in order to progress, to learn and practice these teachings and improve the condition of the mind through training the mind. So let me pause here and see what questions you guys might have about right view because we covered this last week, but I would like to be sure that if you've had some time to think about this, that if there's any questions that you have to be able to help you see this more clearly. The way that you ask questions is put those into Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom in the comment section, and we'll be sure the moderators get your question asked during class. But if you're in Zoom, you can electronically raise your hand and ask any questions or follow-up questions directly. Hi, David. So would you say that right view is a, about empowerment and without right view, and with right view is when we attain the ability to walk the path and have a peaceful mind. Is that what right view is essentially about? Yeah, having the right view of what's truly causing this discontentedness. Because with wrong view, we think that it's other people that are causing our discontentedness. Or we think that a certain situation is causing our discontentedness. And we walk around being angry and frustrated at other people or at the situation. And oftentimes we push these people or these situations out of our life. And eventually we get to a point where we find it very difficult to associate with certain people or certain individuals. We have to have this kind of bubble that we only associate with certain people in our life. 
And then when we observe that someone does things that we don't like or does things in a way that we don't agree with, we then find a way to rationalize pushing them out of our life because they've made us angry. But this is wrong view and it's going to just lead to constant complications because a person who has wrong view, they're not going to be able to get along and be able to interact and socialize and have opportunities to improve their life with various people in their community. They're going to continually find problems and faults in other people and blame that on others, thinking that they're the ones who are causing them to be angry. When in fact, if you have right view, you can see that you're causing all your own discontentedness. And instead of pushing people out of your way, which doesn't actually solve the problem, instead, you can work on the real problem, which is these three poisons or these three unwholesome roots or these 10 fetters as well, which the three unwholesome roots boil down into and get more detailed into. So with the right view of the world and the right view that you are indeed causing your own discontentedness, now you can actually work on the real problem. Because all through our life, as we kept associating these discontent feelings with other people and other situations, we're not solving the real problem by pushing people out of our life or avoiding certain situations. We're just creating a smaller and smaller group of people that we can actually associate with. And this creates a life that is very closed off and closed in where we're not able to participate in life and have these fulfilling experiences and fulfilling relationships. Thank you, David. Let's get a awesome now. Thank you, James. We have a question from Amina. She says, a question about right view. One's expectations can be used, uh, can be based on people, experiences, situations, or objects. Once we become aware of this dynamic, the goal is to then drop expectations from those areas. Should this also include expectations we have for ourselves? For example, the mind would like to move the practice to include meditation three times a day. This has been, this has not been achieved yet. As long as the mind releases the expectations, the mind can remain content in the meantime. Is this the correct interpretation of right view in this example? Yes, if you're letting go of expectations and instead pursuing things in your life as an interest or a goal or an objective, that's what's going to help the mind let go of craving, desire, attachment and allow the mind to reside peaceful. What right view is, is understanding that any time the mind is discontent, you're causing it yourself. Essentially taking responsibility and accountability for all that happens in your life. That's what right view is all about. And then once you have right view, then you can work on eliminating the expectations. You can work on eliminating this craving, desire, attachment, this chasing after the objects of our affection, having these wants and these expectations and realize that there are certain things that we need in the world. There are certain goals, there are certain objectives, there are certain interests that we pursue in terms of developing our life and moving forward in life. But it's when the mind is holding on to those things and expecting them and wanting them that it's going to cause us discontentedness when we don't get it in the time frame that we're expecting. 
And by letting all of that go and just realize that, okay, there's this life and we need to pursue this life as goals, as interests, as objectives, then we can work towards those things, but without expectation of it's got to be done by this time. It's absolutely, I have to build up my meditation practice the three times a day within three months or else I'm a loser, I'm a failure. And there's this negative self-talk that then degrades and diminishes the mind. So instead, if you understand that you're not interested in being complacent, but you're also not interested in holding on to something really tightly, you can just gradually move forward in the middle way with this goal, objective, and interest of any aspect of your life that you'd like to pursue. Thanks, teacher. No more questions for now. All right. So... As we move from right view and understanding that, okay, the mind is causing itself to be discontent, that we can eliminate this discontentedness through accepting responsibility for everything that we're encountering in our life, whether it's thoughts and feelings that are in the mind, whether it's certain situations that occur, if someone's arguing with us and we choose to argue back, that's a result of our decisions. That's the natural law of gamma. So in order to understand the natural law of gamma in these natural laws of existence, we need to understand that everything that happens in our life is as a result of our own decisions, our own free will decisions. And that's why you should never think of the Buddhist teachings as rules, that they are instead guidance, helping you to understand these natural laws. And by you learning this teachings, then you'll be able to make wiser decisions. But there's no rules here. They're guidance helping you to understand that through right view, you're accepting responsibility for the condition of the mind. You're accepting responsibility for the feelings that exist in the mind. You're accepting responsibility for the things that are occurring in your life. And now when you do that, now you can make decisions through wisdom to move beyond this and make wiser decisions leading to more wholesome outcomes. And the second step of the Eightfold Path is called right intention, where the Buddha talks about three aspects of right intention. The first one is called the intention of renunciation. This is where you develop the interest or willingness to let things go and kind of give up any unwholesomeness that the mind is holding on to, any kind of false beliefs or false perceptions of reality. Because if you're currently experiencing discontentedness, that means that the mind is unenlightened. And in order to move from unenlightened to enlightened, there are certain things that the mind is holding on to that you need to let go of. Additionally, there's certain wisdom that you don't understand yet that you need to bring into the mind in order to develop your life practice in order to get to this enlightened mental state. So this renunciation is having the intention and understanding that you're going to need to let go of certain false beliefs or certain false perceptions, this misunderstanding of reality, this unwholesomeness that we practice in the unenlightened state. That needs to all be let go of, but it's going to be a gradual process. If you enter into this path with the idea that I'm going to hold on to everything I've currently got and not let go of anything, then you're not going to be able to let go of the things that are currently in the mind and you're not going to be able to bring in this wisdom to help you further on this path. 
So the first aspect of right intention is this intention of renunciation. And then there's this intention of non-ill will. Ill will is this animosity or bitterness, this anger, hatred, this ill will, this lesser versions of all of this that the mind tends to walk around with and kind of almost looking out for enemies around us and being very fearful of things that are going on around us. So by letting go of this animosity of this bitterness and having this intention of non-ill will, this will help set the mind up for developing the rest of this path. Another way of saying non-ill will is to say goodwill or loving kindness. So here there needs to be an intention where the mind is very interested in practicing loving kindness or this genuine interest in seeing all beings be well, where you have this interest in seeing all beings be peaceful. Because if we walk around with the opposite of that, where we wish harm on others or we have this ill will or even we have this little dig or this little sarcasm that we'd like to give to somebody who's maybe in our life or somebody who comes into our life at a certain time, then any of that that you put out is only going to come back to you. So you need to ensure that you're practicing non-ill will or loving kindness, which we'll talk about more as we get into chapter 14 of this book in this program. And then the third aspect of right intention is harmlessness, where you're not interested in causing any harm to any beings, where the mind is incapable of causing harm to others. So this is an important aspect of this path because of this cause and effect, this action and result, this natural law of karma. As we make choices, if we make choices and decisions that cause harm to others, either intentionally or unintentionally, any harm that we put out is going to come back to us. So when you set the intention in your mind that you're not interested in harming and you practice that harmlessness, then all the rest of this path that the Buddha is going to share with you is all about helping you to see what aspects of your life you're currently doing that is causing harm in the world. And by cleaning that up, your speech, your actions, your livelihood, and other things, by cleaning all of that up and ensuring you're not causing harm to others, then over time, as you practice more and more, there'll be less and less harm that comes to you. So it's important that you ensure that you are setting this intention to not cause harm or practice harmlessness. And by not causing harm to others through our intentions, our speech, our actions, our livelihood, then that harm is significantly reduced. And ultimately, when you perfect the Eightfold Path, you're not causing harm to any beings whatsoever. Then no harm will be coming to you and you can be at ease that the mind doesn't have to be fearful because you've seen the truth of this natural law of gamma more and more that as you clean up your practice and you're only producing wholesome decisions, only wholesome things come back to you. And then you can be at ease throughout your day because you're only practicing wholesomeness. Let me just go ahead and summarize this wisdom, this first section of the Eightfold Path. Right view is the Four Noble Truths and accepting the responsibility for your own intentions, your feelings that are in the mind, your speech, and your actions. 
So by you accepting responsibility for your intentions and any feelings that are produced in the mind, in your speech and your actions, now with that right view, you accepted responsibility, you understand there's accountability, there's consequences for all the decisions that we make in life. And with that right view, you can now develop the rest of the path. With right intention, it's about those three aspects of intention of renunciation, non-ill will or loving kindness and harmlessness. And now with this right view, this wisdom of right view, with this wisdom of right intention, we can now build upon that the moral conduct and ensuring that we're not causing harm to other beings through our moral conduct. And the first aspect of the moral conduct, which is the third step on the Eightfold Path, is all about right speech. During the lifetime of the Buddha, the only type of communication that was happening was through speech. But nowadays, we have verbal speech, we have text, we have emails, we have posts and social media. We have multiple ways of communicating that didn't exist during the lifetime of the Buddha. So while the Buddha called this right speech and we think of it that way, you can also think of this as right communication and that all your communication should be in line with right speech. And when it's not in line with right speech, what you're going to see is that harm is being put out into the world through your speech. So therefore harm is going to be coming back to you. And with you having not studied this in the past and just speaking however you thought was appropriate, you might have had certain relationships that go really well, but you also have certain situations that haven't gone well for you. And the reason why is because your mind just hasn't been exposed to the teachings of right speech and understanding that in detail. And as we go around in the world practicing wrong speech, even with maybe the best hearted intentions, you were speaking in ways that were causing harm. So therefore harm came to you. And even though you might have had what you felt were good intentions, you might not have had right intention, which is that intention of renunciation, the intention of non-ill will, and the intention of harmlessness. And once you purify your intentions, now you can purify your speech through the words of the Buddha and understanding that when we lie, when we slander, when we have harsh speech, when we are speaking with frivolous speech, that we're causing harm in the world. These things are all going to cause harm to others and therefore harm is going to come to us. And the Buddha further clarifies right speech when he talks about the five factors of well-spoken speech. And he gives us five things that we should pay very close attention to as we're speaking with others. And when you train the mind to speak in this way, it's going to be a bit of a challenge to bring your practice up to that point. But more and more over time, you can build up your practice to get closer and closer to practicing the five factors of well-spoken speech. And as you do, you'll see that your relationships, both personally and professionally, really blossom because now you're practicing in a way that isn't causing harm to anybody. And as you learn the five factors of well-spoken speech, you can look back over past conversations that you've had that went really, really well. And you can see that even before you knew what the five factors of well-spoken speech were in those conversations that went really well, you were practicing all five factors and so was the other person perhaps. 
But in situations that went unwell or that led to unwholesome results, you and or the other person wasn't practicing these five factors of well-spoken speech. So therefore it led to harmful results or unwholesome results. So what you're doing in part of this path to enlightenment is training the mind to purify your speech so that you're practicing speaking at the right time. What you say is true. You speak gently, that you speak beneficially and with a mind of loving kindness and you're not blameful in your speech. In this chapter five of the volume one, Developing a Life Practice, I go through and I detail each individual aspect of these five factors, ensuring that you understand all the different aspects of these five factors. And you can reflect on this, that in situations where you didn't speak at the right time or others didn't speak at the right time, it didn't lead to wholesome results. Or if you have been lied to or you have lied, you weren't speaking the truth, it led to unwholesomeness. Or if you didn't speak gentle, if you spoke harsh or aggressive, your word choice or your tone or your tempo was such that it was harsh or aggressive or hostile, it led to unwholesome results in your relationships and in your conversations. And when you spoke unbeneficially, maybe there was frivolous speech or idle chatter, there wasn't really any purpose behind your speech, then you're not speaking in a way that's beneficial to others and therefore people weren't interested in listening to you. And then if you weren't speaking with a mind of loving kindness, if there was inner hate as part of your speech or this ill will, then even with that little bit of sarcasm that you might say to some people on certain occasions, that's going to cause harm and therefore harm's gonna come back to you. So it's only when you're practicing all five factors that your speech is completely purified. And you're gonna have to ramp this up more and more if you're looking to purify your speech. And there's a bit of trial and error here. You're not going to be perfect with this just because you've heard me talk about this, just because you see it in the book that the Buddha taught this and you read how I teach it. You're not gonna be able to go out into the world and be perfect with this. It's not like a light switch. So you're gonna need to gradually refer back to this and look at the book closely where you're having challenges in your speech and you're noticing conversations don't go well, you can consult the book and you can look through the book and identify areas where you weren't practicing right speech. Even if the other person wasn't practicing right speech too, don't worry about that because that's their practice. What you're working on is your practice. So you can identify the areas that you were having trouble with in that particular conversation and then just work on it in your next conversation to improve those areas of the five factors of well-spoken speech where you were challenged. And if you think of the Buddhist teachings as the ceiling that you're gradually working up towards, then you can work over a period of three months, six months, a year, what have you, in all your various relationships and making sure that you're always using the five factors of well-spoken speech through your verbal communication, your written communication, and any other ways that you communicate. That while you're practicing these, then you'll observe that your conversations and your relationships will be at ease and your professional and personal relationships can really blossom. The next aspect of 
right speech is to understand that if you're lacking the insight of the five factors of well-spoken speech, you can always kind of revert to a more simple way of thinking of this is that your speech should be polite, kind, friendly, and respectful, having wholesome speech at all times. If you're able to think about that, then that can lead you in the direction of having good, wholesome speech. But it's really those five factors of well-spoken speech that really open up and help you to deeply understand what the Buddha was teaching as a way to purify your speech. But there's some additional aspects in this chapter that I provide as kind of like uh, ways to help you to further understand how to speak in ways that won't cause harm to others, therefore harm won't come to you. The next part of the Eightfold Path is called Right Action. This is all about our bodily actions and ensuring that we're not causing harm with our bodily actions. In the words of the Buddha, he talks about not taking life, about refraining from not taking what is given in terms of like stealing and don't steal because that's a bodily action that will cause harm. And he also talks about refraining from sexual misconduct. But in his Eightfold Path, he tends to talk at a kind of a certain level of detail. And then throughout the rest of his teachings, he pulls back the covers and gets deeper and deeper and deeper into various aspects of his teachings. So notice here as part of right action, he doesn't say, don't walk up to somebody and punch them in the face, because if you punch someone in the face, they're most likely going to punch you back. Their friends are going to punch you. The police are going to arrest you. Someone might pull out a weapon or a gun or what have you. It's not wise to punch someone in the face. So if you understand right action as not harming through your bodily actions, while the Buddha gives you some very significant ones here, like taking life, like stealing and having sexual misconduct, there's also a whole lot of other harms that we can do through our bodily actions that if we harm through our bodily actions, that harm is going to come back to us through the decisions that we made. And by making decisions that are wholesome, not to cause harm with our bodily actions, then we won't experience harm coming back to us. So when you read the words of the Buddha, remember that he's always teaching in this layered effect where he's going to kind of introduce a certain teaching at a certain level. And then as you dive deeper and deeper into his teachings, he's going to get deeper and deeper into what he's truly talking about. And if you connect right action to bodily actions, then you just know, excuse me, not to cause any harm through your bodily actions. The things that I included in the book to kind of help you along these lines a bit more, connecting it over to the five precepts is yes, that we should refrain from killing, from stealing, from sexual misconduct, from substances that cause heedlessness, and also gambling. Remember, these aren't rules. These aren't commandments. This isn't a doctrine of rules to follow. And if you follow these, there's going to be some reward at the end of the rainbow. What this is, is this is the wisdom to understand that when you refrain from doing these things, when you refrain from causing harm through these various bodily actions, that then harm won't come to you. Because if you're killing other beings, then people are going to be interested in killing you or locking you up in jail or doing other harmful things to you. If you're stealing from people, that's causing harm to them. 
So you need to ensure that you're not stealing. Same thing with sexual misconduct. By being in a relationship, if we're out having sexual misconduct, then that's going to degrade our relationship because there's not going to be loyalty and trust in the relationship. And we're going to observe that having sex with multiple people are going to result in discontentedness in the mind as we potentially have to manage all these different relationships, as we potentially experience sexually transmitted diseases, as there's certain guilt or fears or shame that comes into the mind. We'll discuss these and others as part of the five precepts in detail when we get to chapter seven, which is only two weeks from now. Substances that cause heedlessness will also pollute the mind and make it very difficult to progress on this path. And I'll discuss all the various substances that will help you understand this, not as a rule, not as a commandment, but if you're working to purify the mind and arise this concentration and perform optimally with the mind, any kind of substances that you put into the body that causes heedlessness is going to affect the mind and shake it up and make it difficult for you to observe your life practice and observe the condition of the mind to be able to purify it along this path. And then with gambling, this actually creates craving in the mind where the mind is craving for money or wealth. And by playing games of chance and gambling, we oftentimes can get very addicted to the up and down experiences in gambling. And this oftentimes results in us losing resources that would otherwise be applied to sustaining our life or the life of those close to us. And we can find ourselves in a lot of trouble when we are gambling and we get sucked into that. So by refraining from gambling, then the mind can be at ease that any kind of resources that you acquire through your hard work is going to life-sustaining efforts to help you acquire food, water, clothing, shelter, or medical care, and it's not going to be wasted on something like gambling. And then there's right livelihood, which really rounds out our moral conduct as part of the Eightfold Path. Our livelihood is how we choose to sustain our life. And what we choose in order to have a livelihood or a career or an occupation, this is going to produce certain results in the world. Whereas if we choose any of the five wrong livelihoods, then these livelihoods are causing harm in the world. Therefore, if we base our income on any of these livelihoods, it's going to then cause harm to us. And those five wrong livelihoods that the Buddha spoke about that are causing harm in the world, thus harm is going to come to us based on our decisions to practice these livelihoods is any business in weapons, business in living beings, business in meat, business in substances that cause heedlessness, and businesses in poisons. Because as you see here, weapons are meant to cause harm and hurt others. So therefore, if we sustain our life on selling weapons, then that's going to cause harm to others. So therefore, it's going to cause harm to us. If we have a business in living beings like human trafficking or like slaves, or if you think about animals and selling animals, any of these kind of things are going to cause harm in the world. And we see that with COVID, that COVID-19 and this coronavirus actually came out of a market that was selling living beings, where these 
living beings had a certain virus and it jumped from the animal world into the human world and now we're all dealing with this virus in the human world because of our lack of practice and our lack of understanding of something like right livelihood. Same thing with business and meat. If we sell meat, it means that we need to kill other beings in order to sell this meat and that's going to cause us harm, which was what was happening in the market that ended up producing coronavirus. And then businesses and substances that cause heedlessness are things like selling drugs and alcohol, things of this nature. And if you think about situations where people are basing their livelihood on this, they face many dangers. If you're either standing on the street corner selling drugs, or even if you're doing something that your government says is legal to sell alcohol and you're a cashier at a liquor store, those are the places that get robbed. And those people go through a lot of fear as a result of being robbed. And some people even get murdered as a result of working in those places. So what we're talking about here in the Buddhist teachings of the natural law of gamma is beyond what we practice in terms of humanity's laws. Humanity's laws are at a much lower level because they're made by human beings and we are prone to mistakes and errors. But this natural law of gamma is a much higher level of a natural law that all things function through these natural laws. And this is why you'll see people who sell substances that cause heedlessness, whether it's illicit drugs on a street corner or whether it's even something like a alcohol that is sold in a liquor store. The people who are connecting their livelihoods to these things are subjected to harms because these are harms that are being caused by us choosing to have this livelihood. And when we clean up our livelihood and all these other steps along the Eightfold Path, we end up experiencing better results as a result of our decisions. And this fifth livelihood of poisons that the Buddha talks about is poisons are meant to kill other beings. And if we choose to sustain our life on selling poisons, then that's going to cause harm in the world and therefore harm is going to come to us. So by learning this wisdom and making wiser decisions about things like our livelihood, our actions, our speech, our intentions, and by having right view, we can purify all of these things with the wisdom and moral conduct, which will ultimately lead to a better mental discipline because we won't be experiencing these harmful situations in daily life where we're causing harm through our speech, our actions, and our livelihood, the longer that a practitioner is causing harm through their speech, actions, and livelihood, the more harms are going to come back to you. And the mind's just going to keep getting shaken up more and more and more. And it's going to have a lot of trouble to develop this mental discipline because we keep experiencing these harms over and over and over again in our life. It's only when we gain this wisdom and practice this moral conduct that we can then purify those aspects of the path and we can also be working on experiencing this better mental discipline or control of the mind. The other part of right livelihood that the Buddha talked about, and he talked about right livelihood for ordained practitioners in a much more detailed level than he did for household practitioners, he also taught that we shouldn't have this kind of scheming or 
this belittling or just pursuing gain with gain as part of our livelihood, that we, should, we shouldn't have corrupt practices in our livelihood. And we shouldn't just have a job just for the sake of making money, but it should be something that we are really genuinely interested in pursuing and helping the world through our livelihood rather than just kind of being at a dead-end job collecting a paycheck. The mind isn't going to feel fulfilled if you're just kind of at what we might call a dead-end job and you're just kind of pursuing gain with gain. So it's important that as you clean up your life practice and you maybe choose to move into a different job or a different company or a different livelihood, that you look at many different aspects of your livelihood and that you find a profession and a career and a company that you feel good about, that the mind can be at ease knowing that you're benefiting humanity through your livelihood, because then you're going to feel more fulfilled when you're working at a position or at a company that you feel that is contributing to beneficial results in the world. And thus you happen to be collecting a paycheck for it that is sustaining your life but really what you're going to work for each day is that you're really interested and motivated to perform this role in society where you're helping humanity. And it just so happens that you collect this paycheck as part of that. So that's what it would mean that you're not pursuing gain with gain, that you're really looking to contribute to the world through your livelihood. And only you know what that is and everybody's going to be unique and different in how they practice that. So let me pause here and see what questions you guys have about either right intention, right speech, right action, or right livelihood. What's going to Nick first? Or the teacher. What is meant uh, talking and hinting under wrong livelihood? What is meant by that, sir? This goes along with scheming, that if you're in a livelihood and you're belittling or slandering or you're talking really big about your livelihood, very prideful, you know, kind of hinting, like kind of trying to persuade people to purchase things from you and not other people and talking down about other people who are maybe in your same livelihood. This goes along with right speech, but as part of your livelihood, you need to make sure that you apply this aspect of right speech in your livelihood so that you've purified your livelihood and that you're not allowing wrong speech to be practiced as part of your livelihood. So you might think about a politician who has chosen to be a political person. They've chosen to be a politician. Okay, that's a right livelihood. It's not one of those five wrong livelihoods. But now that you're in your livelihood, there shouldn't be this corruption, this talking behind people's back, this hinting that other people are no good, this belittling, this slandering towards others. Instead, focus on what you're contributing to the world as a politician or a community leader, rather than belittling or degrading others about the things that you feel they're not doing well. Thank you, teacher. That's very clear. You're welcome. What's going to happen now? Hi, teacher David. Um, I have a question. I read on the right livelihood saying that now that marijuana is um, for medicine um, purposes, it's okay to sell, like to be in the business of marijuana. I mean, how do we know that if people doing, I mean, to, um, how does one know that you're not selling it for like people taking it for recreational purpose? 
and I mean, yeah. So there's irrefutable evidence that the plant of marijuana has medical benefits for people. There's children who have seizures, maybe 10 or 20 seizures a day, and all the medicines that they're taking aren't really helping to reduce that. But they can take a little CBD oil, for example, and not have a seizure for three months or six months. So there's all this irrefutable evidence that there's medical benefits behind this plant of marijuana that we haven't fully understood in our society until recent times. And there's different aspects of the marijuana plant. There's what's called THC, which produces the high, and then there's CBD, which produces the medical benefits. If someone is setting up to practice a livelihood of selling this substance of marijuana, what I would do in that situation is I would be sure that I'm selling ethically in terms of making sure that I'm meeting all the requirements of the local laws and jurisdiction of the government, because that's going to be important in order to ensure no harm comes to you. And then I would be sure that I was carrying products that are really geared towards medical use, like oils with CBD or things with CBD. Because if we sell products that people are smoking with a lot of THC, this is producing the high and this is also causing harm to the lungs of the individual. So the area of marijuana, there's this large gray area that people need to look at and understand very closely because there's people who take marijuana for the sake of recreational pleasant feelings and substances that cause heedlessness, and it just happens to be legal now, just like alcohol is legal. But there's this whole other side to marijuana that it can be used in ways with oils or other ways that don't cause harm to the physical body and produces medical benefits. And if I was going to go down the line of practicing a livelihood of selling marijuana, I wouldn't myself have any kind of marijuana that can be smoked because I know that that's going to cause harm to people's lungs. I'm also not going to carry any products with high THC. I'm only gonna look at carrying products that are purely for medical purposes and making sure that the people who are using the oils and using the other products are doing so with a real medical purpose. So right now, some of the places that are set up aren't necessarily set up in that way, but that's just how I would choose to practice and everybody's got to choose for themselves how they're practicing. And what I think you're probably going to see over time, if it's not already happening, is just like liquor stores are a place that tend to get robbed a lot and people get killed in these places because of selling substances that cause heedlessness. I think what we're going to see if we're not already seeing is something similar is going to be happening with places that are selling marijuana for recreational uses if they're not really focusing on medical purposes. Because when we focus on a livelihood that is for substances that cause heedlessness, this is going to promote a interest in people to rob us, to steal from us, to injure us, because we're injuring humanity, even though we might be following governmental laws, this natural law of gamma is always at play. So I haven't looked at any stories to see if this is actually happening, but I have a feeling it probably is in certain places that are selling marijuana in ways that are for recreational use, and there's not a real medical purpose behind it. 
Right. Yeah, because one time when I was looking for a job and um, there's this company that close to my home, they were looking for an accountant and I applied for it and I didn't know what I I didn't know exactly what it is and then what the company was doing and then before they called me for an interview I did the research on the company and they said oh they are producing marijuana selling marijuana so I just like I declined the interview I said I'm not interested because I thought like for me I think it's marijuana selling marijuana is all wrong I mean how would you really know whether people is using it for recreational or for medicine purpose. So I just decline. Yeah, this is an area that needs to be navigated very delicately if somebody is moving into that aspect of a livelihood or a career because there really is a big, wide, gray area around this. And it would be very challenging to navigate with it being so new with government regulations and it being so new to the public, it's quite a challenge for people who are in that livelihood. If you talk to people who own dispensaries or who are involved in growing and all the things around the marijuana industry, it's very challenging for them because it is so new and they're having to navigate all of these things. It's quite stressful for them and uh, very challenging. It's something that if somebody's going to decide to go into, they need to understand that there's a lot of challenges around that and there's a potential that they could end up experiencing a lot of harm from that choice of livelihood if they're not navigating this uh, really closely based on what we understand about the natural law of karma. Right, right. Any other? Thank you. You're welcome. Any other questions on any of right intention, right speech, right action, or right livelihood? We have a question on right view, actually, from David Carlisle. How does right view explain the anger of rejection that I experience from being excluded from family and community? What about righteous anger? In the Bible, Jesus had righteous anger. Was he experiencing wrong view? Yes, Jesus had wrong view. He wasn't fully enlightened. And what you're experiencing, David, is the mind is craving permanence. The mind wants to be accepted by everybody, right? But when that rejection comes and family or friends decide that they don't want to be with you, then the mind is craving permanence. It wants everybody to accept you. And what you've got to understand is because the universal truth of impermanence, not everybody's going to have positive thoughts about you. They're not always going to have a warm, loving hearts towards you. Even the Buddha himself, even Jesus himself and others, people hated Jesus. People hated the Buddha. Even today, there's people that hate the Buddha and hated Jesus. So there's going to be people that reject you and that don't feel comfortable to be around you. And it doesn't mean that you're necessarily doing anything wrong, particularly, but you should look at who you choose to be with. That if somebody's saying or deciding that they're not interested in being with you, then why would you choose to be with them? And just realize that, okay, this person maybe isn't seeing certain qualities in your character that you would like them to see. You can't force them to see those qualities and instead just move on. But as long as your mind is craving permanence, that second noble truth, 
that you're craving for all people to accept you or one particular person or two or three or a group of person to accept you. As long as you're craving, you have that mental longing and strong eagerness. That's why you're causing your own discontentedness, that feeling of rejection and that anger is being caused by your own mind because it's impossible for everyone on this planet to accept you. That would be permanence and that doesn't exist. So once you realize that and you can practice that more and more and you can let go of these family members or friends who are rejecting you and you can just let go of them and move on with creating your own life, then the mind can get to peacefulness because you're moving on and no longer holding on to the people who are rejecting you. Because as long as you hold on to that, craving acceptance, that's where you're going to produce your own anger. Those people aren't producing your anger. You're actually producing it yourself because the mind is still holding on and still craving, wanting things to be a certain way. And when they're not that way, the mind produces its own anger. Hi, David. I was wondering about with the right speech as we look at the five factors of well-spoken speech and right action. It may seem as though in the beginning that we may have to think about what are the five factors of well-spoken speech as we get brightness, would you say that these things become second nature to us? Yeah, as you build up your practice more and more, it becomes very easy. It becomes effortless. You don't even have to think about it because your mind has been so deeply trained that you don't have to think about the five factors of well-spoken speech anymore. But when you're going from where you are now up to this ideal of what the Buddha is teaching, it's like chucking off big pieces of wood on that sculpture of that hunk of wood and you're trying to create this better human being and it's really hard to move the mind up to that level of practice but it gets easier and easier that's why you've got a teacher to help you you can reach out for personal guidance you can submit questions through facebook or private chat or you can join for these classes and ask questions or join for in-person retreats you're going to need guidance along this path because learning the teachings in a class like this or in the book is just one part of it. But as you start reflecting and practicing, you're gonna have this iterative process where you start moving these teachings into practice and you might get 20% of what's being shared and you're practicing that pretty well, but you still have to work on that other 80%. So you need to come back to your teacher, come back to the books, come back to the classes, continue to learn and then build up your practice more. And now you're practicing 40, 50 or 60%. And as you get closer and closer to practicing 100% of each one of these aspects of the Eightfold Path, it becomes effortless. But there's a lot of work in the meantime. It's not easy to attain enlightenment, but it's not difficult either once you understand the teachings and you really apply dedication and diligence to learning and practicing. We have a question from Adrian. Can you please explain ruminating to me as it applies the four noble truths and eightfold path. Yeah, so when the mind has the certain thought and it just keeps going over and over and over, rumiating in the mind, this is because the mind has that clinging. It's holding on to this thought and it just keeps in the mind over and over and over like it's like a broken record just playing over and over and over again. The mind is holding on. That's the whole problem is that the mind has this craving, desire, attachment. It has this clinging. It craves permanence. It's holding on. It doesn't easily let go. 
And that's why the mind can just have this constant cycle of just thinking about the same thing over and over and over again. And it's not until you train the mind through these teachings, deeply training it in meditation and all other aspects of this Eightfold Path, that you can eliminate that from the mind. It's a gradual process. It's not going to happen overnight, but gradually you'll see less and less of that in the mind. But this is that mind craving permanence and holding on and clinging. It's not comfortable with just letting go, having that renunciation and letting go. But in meditation, through breathing mindfulness meditation, as the mind wanders off the breath and you cut it off, let it go and bring it back to the breath, and then it does that again, and then you cut it off and let it go and come back to the breath. The more that you practice this way with breathing mindfulness meditation, your mind will then be at ease because it's able to easily let go of things. Right now, in the unenlightened state and early in this path, the mind doesn't easily let go. It's trying to hold on to all this stuff, and that's what's causing its discontentedness and even this constant thoughts of the same thing over and over again. So we look at right livelihood. I was wondering if you had any general advice on choosing a livelihood. Is it just avoiding wrong livelihood and then perhaps finding a career that engages us or assists others? I think right livelihood might be one of the easiest ones to actually practice because as long as you're not having a livelihood that's one of those five wrong livelihoods, you're set. So like I know, James, you do stuff online. I think you do like graphic design or some online stuff. You're not practicing one of those five wrong livelihoods. Or like Bossom is an English teacher and Ali is an accountant and Nick is actually retired, but he does some volunteer work with some people at a jiu-jitsu academy. So these are all things that are contributing to the world that aren't part of this wrong livelihood. And as long as we're doing things that aren't one of these five, then you're set. There's nothing else for you to need to do there other than ensuring that you have meaningful work and that you feel fulfilled with the work that you're actually doing and that you're not scheming, you're not doing corruption, you're not just pursuing gain with gain, but you have a real meaningful career that you feel like when you wake up in the morning, it's like, yeah, I'm interested to go to work and I'm interested to do this job or this career or this activity that I do on a daily basis. Because if you end up in a job or a career or at a company that you despise and you just feel miserable to get out of bed and go to work every day and you don't really feel that you're really contributing to the world in any particular way, that's a real miserable way to live life and wake up that way each day and drag yourself into an office or drag yourself into some particular activity that you're doing for eight hours or 10 hours a day, perhaps, for your livelihood. Whereas if you change and look at something that is more fulfilling for you, either change company or change a position within your company or change your career to something that feels more meaningful for you, you'll have this zest for life. You'll have this energy, this enthusiasm, this motivation, that this pep in your step that you didn't have with this other situation where you're maybe just dragging yourself to work every day. Thank you, sir. All right. So is that the last question for this section? 
Those are all the questions we have in this moment. Yes, sir. Okay, your audio cut out there for a second, James. <laughs> so just to summarize moral conduct is when we're looking at right speech, we should ensure that we're not causing harm through our verbal conduct, but really all communication. Practicing those five factors of well-spoken speech in all of our communication and realize that there's some trial and error there that you're gonna to have to gradually build your practice up to that. And when you have conversations that don't go well, sit down, take your time, reflect on that. Look at the five factors of well-spoken speech, read through the book and look at where you maybe fell short of the five factors of well-spoken speech so that you can improve that next time. And where conversations went well and you feel like, wow, that was such a great conversation that produced some great wholesome benefits. You can look at the book for those too and reflect on that and it kind of confirms for you that you're on the right path and you're practicing these good wholesome teachings of the five factors of well-spoken speech and it kind of solidifies and builds some confidence that you're on the right track here with your speech. And now it's just a matter of purifying your speech in all your individual relationships with your life partners, with your children, with your neighbors, with your coworkers, with your boss, with anybody that you interact with, always practicing these good wholesome teachings and ensuring that you're not causing any harm through your communication. And then with your right action, ensure you're not causing any harm through your bodily conduct, that all your bodily actions should be harmless. And then ensuring that you're not causing any harm through your livelihood is just ensuring that you're not practicing any of those five wrong livelihoods and ensuring that you're choosing a way to sustain your life through wholesome means that doesn't cause harm to others and that you're even in a certain occupation or career that you're not doing any kind of corruption or scheming or slandering or things like this that would end up damaging your livelihood and damaging your career that the word would travel throughout your profession that you're not practicing your livelihood in the best way and practicing right intention right speech and right action will actually help you in your livelihood so if you've chosen a livelihood that isn't one of those five wrong livelihoods within that livelihood if you're practicing right intention right speech and right action then you should be performing your job really really well and you'll actually probably observe that you get along with your coworkers really well you'll end up experiencing promotions and increases in your salaries and things like this because you're performing very well in this livelihood and you're not causing harm not only through your livelihood, but you're getting along with your coworkers and your customers and your clients very, very well. So those other aspects of the Eightfold Path will actually help and support your livelihood. That's why that's number five, because these other things kind of build up to performing your livelihood really well. Now moving into the mental discipline of the Eightfold Path, this is where we're training our mind to have discipline to be able to control the mind, not allowing the mind to run away from us, but instead we're controlling the mind. We train the mind to not react in situations, but instead to respond. When we don't have mental discipline, when we don't have control of the mind, then we end up reacting in situations. And we react through craving, anger, and ignorance, or this unknowing of true reality. 
and our intentions, our speech, and our actions through that reaction cause harm, so therefore harm comes to us. But if we slow things down and we start practicing in a way that gains control of the mind and this discipline of the mind, then we can start practicing in a way that we respond to situations through wisdom, through moral conduct and this mental discipline with generosity, loving kindness, and our wisdom. And step number six on the Eightfold Path is called right effort. This is where the Buddha gives us four right efforts, or it's also called the four right strivings, where you strive to apply this effort to eliminate unwholesome qualities from the mind, and you arise wholesome qualities. This particular slide shows the Buddha's words, but I break this down in the book and in the chapter in a way that gives you some examples and helps to summarize each individual aspect of right effort. The first one is where we prevent unwholesome mental states that have not arisen in the mind from arising in the mind. So an unwholesome mental state would be something like having a desire to kill another human being. You probably, in reality, haven't truly had the real intentions to kill another human being. You might have said at certain times in your life, oh, I wish I could just kill him, but it wasn't really truly a thought that you had in terms of something that you would really take action upon. So in terms of preventing an unwholesome mental state that has not arisen in the mind from arising, you should prevent this thought of killing another human being as an example. But there's other examples that you can come up with too, that if there are certain things that just aren't in your mind at all, that they're unwholesome and that you would never even fathom doing those things, such as killing a human being, then you should prevent those from ever arising in the mind. And you take the right effort to actually ensure that those things don't arise in the mind. The second aspect of right effort is any unwholesome mental states that have arisen in the mind, you work to abandon them or eliminate them. So if you have a certain partner that you're in a relationship with and there's a loyal, committed, faithful relationship there and you know that that's important in order to maintain your healthy relationship. If you have a craving for sexual contact with somebody else outside of this relationship, you know that that's going to produce unwholesome results. But if that unwholesome mental state arises in the mind, the Buddha shares that you should take the effort to eliminate that and abandon that from the mind. That craving for sexual contact outside of an existing relationship is going to cause harm in your existing relationship. So where you observe that arises in the mind, abandon it, cut it off, let it go. Or any kind of anger, frustration, or irritation, or any of these other discontent feelings that arise in the mind. Wherever you observe discontentedness arise in the mind, this second aspect of right effort is to abandon that. So when you see conditioned pleasant feelings, or these painful feelings, or these feelings that are neither painful nor pleasant arising in the mind, you should cut those off and let them go. That would be abandoning the unwholesome mental states that have arisen in the mind. And this will help you to eliminate all craving desire attachments. 
The third aspect of right effort is to produce any unarisen wholesome mental states to arise in the mind. So if there are certain qualities of mind that you learn as part of this path that are wholesome mental states, and you observe that those mental states are not things that are currently in the mind, the Buddha is saying take the effort to arise those wholesome mental states. So for example, as you learn that practicing generosity helps to antidote selfishness in the mind, and if you know that you're not a very generous person and you tend to not share and you don't like to share and you tend to hold on to things very closely and you observe this about the mind, then what the Buddha is saying is take the right effort to arise generosity, bring that into the mind and ensure that you're producing this wholesome mental state that is currently unarisen in your mind, apply the effort to arise this generosity in the mind, for example, or something like compassion, the concern for the misfortune of others. This might be something that is not currently in the mind. And as you observe that that's not in the mind, that you apply the effort to arise this in the mind because this is a wholesome mental state. But there's many other wholesome mental states and there's many other unwholesome mental states as well. These are just examples that I gave in the book and I explain these in a lot of detail for you. The fourth aspect of right effort, the Buddha talks about any wholesome mental states that are currently in the mind, you should maintain those. You should not allow them to fade away. You should work to increase them and grow them in the mind. So if you know that you have loving kindness, for example, this genuine interest in seeing others be well, then you should work to maintain that, increase that, expand that, help it to grow in the mind so that you're practicing loving kindness with more and more and more people in the world. Or something like sympathetic joy, which is having joy for others' success even if you didn't contribute to it. Sympathetic joy antidotes jealousy. So if you notice that you do have sympathetic joy, that when Barbara gets an award at work, you feel joy for her, even though you didn't get the award and you thought maybe you would have gotten the award. When Barbara gets the award, you feel great for her. Or if you were looking to get a promotion and you apply to get this new job and other colleagues applied for the same job as well and you didn't get that job, but maybe Bob or John or somebody else did, you feel joy for Bob and John that they got the job even though you didn't get it. This is sympathetic joy. And if you're observing that in the mind that you have that quality, then the Buddha is saying take the effort to maintain that, to ensure that it doesn't fade away, work to increase the growth in the mind of this sympathetic joy. But we can also take generosity and put it here too. So these are just examples. If you notice that you're a generous person and you tend to share with a lot of people and you aren't selfish, then the Buddha is saying maintain that. Don't allow it to fade away, increase its growth in the mind. Or if you have compassion, then practice that wholesome quality. So there's going to be multiple unwholesome qualities that you're gonna learn as part of this path. And there's going to be multiple wholesome qualities that you're going to learn as part of this path. And what the Buddha is saying as part of right effort is take the effort to purify the mind, eliminate the unwholesome, and arise the wholesome. And ensure you support that, encourage it, 
and don't allow it to fade. This is what right effort is all about, and it takes real effort to do this. It's not going to just happen by itself. You need to actually apply effort and energy for that to occur. Then the seventh step of the Eightfold Path is right mindfulness. A simple way to think about mindfulness is awareness of mind. But here in the words of the Buddha, he breaks it down very specifically. And he talks about body as body, feelings as feelings, mind as mind, and mental objects as mental objects. What he's actually talking about here is what we call the four foundations of mindfulness. You're going to need to develop the four foundations of mindfulness in order to fully practice right mindfulness. When you're first starting out on this path, if you're working on right intention and you're working on right speech and you're working on right action and you're really having to put a lot of work there where your moral conduct is where you should really start cleaning that up most closely, you can think of right mindfulness as just awareness of mind and just leave it at that for now. That's a really simple way to think about mindfulness is awareness of mind. While you're working on your moral conduct and you're working on some other things, you can just think of this mindfulness as awareness of mind. But be aware that the word mindfulness is used in modern culture and in modern conversations in ways that wasn't intended by the Buddha in the way that he uses it. What you'll hear a lot of people using the word mindfulness is they'll use it as careful. So they might hand you a cup of water and they might say, here, make sure you carry that mindfully. What they're really saying is carry it carefully, right? Or here's a pin. Please be mindful of my pin. What they're really saying is be careful that you don't break my pin, right? So no matter how other people think about mindfulness, be sure that you understand what mindfulness is, which is awareness of mind. Because this entire path to enlightenment we're purifying the mind. We're clearing out this unwholesomeness. We're arising the wholesome. We're becoming this better human being. And in order to purify the mind, you need to have awareness of the mind. So you can practice right mindfulness as just awareness of mind to get started on this path. But then as you progress further on this path, you're going to get into what's called the four foundations of mindfulness, where you start understanding that the arising of discontentedness actually occurs through these kind of four phases and having mindfulness of these four phases as discontentedness arises will actually help you eliminate discontentedness from the mind. It will actually help you refine your right effort and eliminate the unwholesome and arise the wholesome if you understand the four foundations of mindfulness and you practice them very, very closely. This is being aware of the bodily sensations that occur. So prior to the mind experiencing the feeling of anger or frustration or even happiness and excitement or boredom or loneliness, there's going to be some bodily sensation that occurs prior to those feelings coming into the mind. And if you can develop awareness of mind and awareness of these bodily sensations, prior to anger arising, you can cut it off at the bodily sensations. And this saves you a whole multitude of pain. Because if you can cut off the anger and frustration 
or the guilt and the shame or the boredom and the loneliness before it ever becomes feelings in the mind, then you just saved yourself hours or maybe days or even weeks of discontentedness where the mind is shaken up from any particular situation. So as you develop awareness of mind, what you should start looking to also be observant of is as pleasant feelings, painful feelings, and feelings that are neither painful nor pleasant arise, it's going to be preceded by these bodily sensations. And when you can observe that with awareness of mind, then from there, you can cut off and let go of these arising discontent feelings. Because if you're doing meditation and you're getting the mind more and more capable of letting go and coming back to the breath, then when you experience these bodily sensations and you become aware of that in the mind, you can cut it off there. And then it never becomes feelings in the mind where the mind gets so excited and so thrilled and so elated based on some condition that it's experiencing. Or it gets angry or frustrated or annoyed or guilt or shame or fear based on some condition. So you can eliminate these discontent feelings as bodily sensations so that then they don't become these discontent feelings in the mind. But if you miss it at the bodily sensations and you observe it as feelings in the mind, you can also cut it off there and let it go as you train your mind more and more with meditation. If you don't catch it as feelings in the mind, then it's going to affect the condition of the mind for multiple hours or multiple days or maybe a week or so. And now you're dealing with a much more difficult challenge because you missed it at the bodily sensations, you missed it at the feelings, and now it's gonna affect the condition of the mind for a longer period of time. But you can also cut it off there as well. But if you don't cut it off there, then it forms what's called a mental object, like ill will or complacency or something like this. And this is essentially what's been happening in our life without us realizing it. As we were born and we've aged, we've been experiencing all this discontentedness along the course of our life. We weren't aware of the wisdom that the Buddha is sharing with us about these bodily sensations, about these feelings, about it affecting the condition of the mind. And we form these mental objects like ill will. And now we walk around with this anger, this hatred, this ill will, looking at kind of people as enemies. That's a lot harder to uproot than if we catch it at the bodily sensations. But we didn't know this early in our life. So we went through multiple situations where the mind was conditioned and it formed these mental objects such as ill will. And now with observance of these mental objects, we then apply the antidote, which the antidote to ill will is loving kindness. So we train the mind with loving kindness meditation and practicing loving kindness in daily life to uproot this mental object of ill will. You kind of take a jackhammer to it. You kind of soften it up and break it up so that now we uproot this ill will and this mental object of ill will no longer exists in the mind so then it won't motivate unskillful intentions, speech, and actions. Whereas if we have these mental objects of things like ill will, complacency, and others, then it's going to motivate unskillful 
intentions, speech, and actions. And then we're going to be putting out harm in the world. And this cycle just keeps continuing. So by gaining this awareness of mind at a high level, and then ultimately as you progress in your practice, learning more and practicing more, you understand these four foundations of mindfulness and you start practicing those at a deeper level, then you can kind of get ahead of this curve where you're uprooting and purifying the mind before the discontentedness goes through bodily sensations, feelings, condition of the mind, and forming these mental objects or further polluting the mind by filling up these mental objects more and more. So we purify the mind through having awareness of the mind and through developing these four foundations of mindfulness, we can uproot all of this stuff and purify it, but we can only do that if we develop mindfulness. So breathing mindfulness meditation is helping us to do that in meditation, but then we practice mindfulness all day long. We can't practice meditation all day long, but we can practice mindfulness and being aware of the mind. So if you're driving and you notice that the mind is daydreaming and already at the office while you're just in the car driving on the way to the office, you got to pull the mind back to the present moment and just drive to work. Or if you're in an elevator or you're on a conversation with somebody and you're noticing that the mind is wandering somewhere else, you need to pull it back so that you can then with that mindfulness, that awareness of mind, you can pull it back to the present moment and practice right concentration or singleness of mind. This is the next step on the Eightfold Path. Right concentration is developing the concentration where the mind is singularly focused on one thing at a time. We do this through meditation and then we also practice it in daily life. In the words of the Buddha, he's actually describing as part of the Eightfold Path the results of right concentration. And effectively what right concentration is, is it's practicing meditation and it's practicing singleness of mind throughout your day. But in the Eightfold Path, he's talking about the jhanas. The jhanas are the byproduct or the result of practicing the entire Eightfold Path. That as you put together the Eightfold Path and you practice it closer and closer, you'll observe that the mind will move into these jhanas, which are four preliminary phases that the mind goes through prior to reaching the first stage of enlightenment. There's this tranquility, there's this equanimity, there's this joy that comes into the mind, there's this concentration that starts coming into the mind as part of the jhanas, and it is very noticeable as the mind moves into these jhanas and on its way to the first stage of enlightenment. But the only way that you'll experience this is by putting together all the other pieces of the Eightfold Path as a foundation as part of developing your life practice. When you develop your life practice to practice right concentration, what you're going to be doing is developing breathing mindfulness meditation, which is something that I teach as part of this program on Wednesdays. That's a really primary practice as part of this path. And then loving kindness is another meditation that we use. And then there's specialized meditations that are used on a case-by-case -case basis that not everybody will need. These are all detailed in chapter 11 of the book, and I teach these on Wednesdays. 
primarily what a practitioner should be focused on in the first part of developing their life practice is breathing mindfulness meditation, building this up gradually to two or three sessions per day for 30 minutes or more per session. And wherever you are in that, that's where you are. You're not ahead of people. You're not behind people. If you're doing five or 10 minutes per session, that's completely fine. That's where you are now. But the goal is to gradually build it up to two or three sessions per day for 30 minutes or more. And it's going to take you time to kind of clear out your activities in your life and make more and more space for this. And as you see the benefits of breathing mindfulness meditation, you'll have more likelihood, more of a tendency to be interested to practice it on a regular ongoing basis. And it takes dedication, determination, and diligence for you to build that up. And it's almost like a snowball where there's this accumulated benefit where you're gradually building up more and more benefits as you roll forward day by day. Or another way to think about it is like scooping water into a bucket that as you're meditating, you're scooping water into the bucket and accumulating more and more benefits until this bucket is overflowing with water. So practitioners should choose to focus on breathing mindfulness meditation as the primary method of meditation for this path to develop right concentration. By focusing on the breath, you're developing concentration you're also developing that awareness of mind because if the mind's not on the breath, you notice that and you cut it off and bring it back. So as part of breathing mindfulness meditation, you're arising and developing right mindfulness, you're developing right concentration, and you're applying right effort to cut off and let go of craving, desire, attachment, where the mind is longing for something, taking you off the breath. And then over time, you gradually get better and better at letting those things go and coming back to the breath and letting those things go and coming back to the breath. You're not going to experience a time where you never have any thoughts in your mind. The goal isn't to eliminate thoughts because you need thoughts. That's what helps you to improve your life. What you're doing is you're purifying the mind of all the unwholesome thoughts so that the wholesome thoughts can come into the mind. That's what you're going to experience in daily life. But in meditation, when you're doing breathing mindfulness meditation, you should be training the mind to cut off all thoughts just in meditation. And the only reason why is because we're cultivating mindfulness, we're cultivating right concentration, and we're eliminating craving, desire, attachment, making it easier and easier for us to notice when the mind is off the breath and making it easier and easier for us to let that go and come back to the breath. That's what we're doing in meditation. That's the training that we're doing. But then outside of meditation, we're only cutting off the unwholesome thoughts. So in your daily life where you observe the mind is having unwholesome thoughts, you cut those off and you let them go. If the mind is having wholesome thoughts in daily life, you can reflect on those. You can use those to improve your life. The way that you might think about this is as an athlete, an athlete's going to be doing push-ups, sit-ups, jumping jacks, jumping rope, weight training, all of these other exercises. But their true sport might be to play football or badminton or volleyball or some other sport. But in their training, they're going to train one way. And then in their sport, they're going to function in a different way. 
So that's what we're doing is in breathing mindfulness meditation, we're cutting off all thoughts because we're trying to be aware of with mindfulness, we're trying to develop concentration and we're trying to train the mind to let go of things easier and easier and easier. But you're going to have thoughts in meditation. It's going to happen. Even when the mind is enlightened, you're still going to have thoughts. But you should be able to more easily observe when the mind is off the breath, catching that quicker and quicker, and making it easier for you to let go of the thoughts once you realize that you're having thoughts and you can bring it back to the breath. Then in daily life, when anger arises, if you've been training well, you can cut that off and let it go really easily. Or when the mind feels guilt or shame, you can cut that off and let it go really easily. Or if there's a certain decision that you were looking to make and the other members of your team disagree with you, then you can cut that off and let it go and just perhaps go with the group because that might be the best decision in that situation. But if you're not training in meditation, in daily life, you're not going to have these qualities of mindfulness, of concentration, and being able to apply right effort to easily let go of the unwholesome thoughts and arise the wholesome. So breathing mindfulness meditation is utterly important. And then loving kindness is to arise that genuine interest in seeing others be well and eliminating anger, hatred, and ill will. The other specialized meditations I teach usually on a one-on-one -on -one basis as people need these. These are things for like craving sexual contact. If somebody has an excessive amount of craving for sexual contact, there's meditation that you can do in order to eliminate that from the mind. Or when you're looking to eliminate that first fetter of personal existence view, there's a meditation that you can do to help you with that. But we would get to that on a one-on-one -on -one basis. And then in order to practice right concentration, all throughout your day, you should be practicing singleness of mind, where you're just focused on one thing at a time. So it's great in meditation to focus on the breath and develop that concentration. And wherever you notice the mind is off the breath, bring it back. But you need to carry those benefits with you in daily life, where as you're aware with mindfulness, that the mind is not in the present moment. You're having a conversation with a friend and your mind goes to something from the past or something to the future, you need to have mindfulness to be aware of that, cut that off, let it go, and come back to the present moment and continue to have an engaging conversation. And your friend's gonna feel better about that conversation because you were present in the conversation. Whereas if you allow the mind to wander, you're not performing optimally with the mind. Or likewise, if you're in a business meeting and the topic is being discussed and your mind's in the past or the future, you're not getting the benefit out of the meeting and you're not able to contribute to the meeting. Whereas if you observe with mindfulness that the mind is daydreaming in somewhere else, you can cut that off and let it go, come into the present moment. Now you can contribute to the meeting or you can glean the insight and input of what's being shared in the meeting so now it can improve your career, improve your life. And this is how you actively train the mind to reside in the middle, that where you observe the mind is not practicing singleness of mind and doing just one thing at a time. You observe that, you cut it off and let it go and come back to the present moment to singleness of mind. And as you develop this ability more and more, the mind will know where that middle is and it'll stay there and it'll reside there for longer and longer periods of time. 
but it's a gradual training, gradual practice, and gradual progress that you're going to see this occur. That as you practice these teachings more and more, the mind will reside in that middle. And when it's out of the middle, you will know. When it's in the middle, the mind's going to be at ease. It's going to feel peaceful. It's going to feel content. You're going to feel joy when the mind is in the middle. And when the mind is out of that middle, it's not going to have those same feelings. It's going to feel stressed. It's going to feel irritated. It's going to feel discontent. And when you feel that, you cut it off and let it go and bring it back to the middle. And that's going to be a practice that gets easier and easier as you develop your entire life practice. As part of right concentration, I discussed the four jhanas, which I'm not going to go through in detail today, but if you guys have questions about those, we can discuss those as part of today's class. And then summarizing mental discipline, this aspect of the Eightfold Path that is right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. Think about right effort as taking the initiative to eliminate unwholesome aspects of the mind and cultivate wholesome qualities in the mind. That's a really simple way to take what the Buddha taught and bring it into something that you can just one sentence and you understand. Eliminate the unwholesome, arise the wholesome. One of the ways I share with my son is kick out the bad stuff and bring in the good stuff. So if you can remember that and you take the effort to do that, that's right effort. Right mindfulness is having awareness of the mind through those four foundations of mindfulness, which you'll need to develop as you go further. But you might be working on your moral conduct first, and that would be a wise way to progress because that's what the Buddha suggested, is that we focus on our moral conduct first. But you should always be focusing and practicing on this awareness of mind until you get to the point where you're maybe ready to start focusing on the four foundations of mindfulness. And then right concentration is the byproduct of putting together all the other aspects of this path. But more specifically, it's practicing meditation and developing singleness of mind to the point where the mind starts experiencing these jhanas. And meditation is a key aspect of right concentration, but there's other aspects to it as well, like I discussed. You're practicing meditation, yes, but you're also practicing singleness of mind outside of meditation, not training the mind to switch rapidly from thing to thing to thing to thing, or what we call multitasking. Instead, do one thing at a time, and then do the next thing, and the next thing, and be very deliberate and put your intentions behind that. Whereas if you're trying to run around and have 15 different things going at one time, it's going to be very hard for you to focus on something like the five factors of well-spoken speech. Because you need to purify your speech, your actions, and your livelihood, and also have those right intentions, if you're trying to do three, four, five, six, eight, ten, fifteen different things at one time, not practicing singleness of mind, then you're going to find it really hard to make wise decisions with wholesome results because you're rapidly switching from task to task to task. So this concept in the world about multitasking, you need to let that go and realize that it's much more beneficial for you to put a lot of focus behind each individual task that you're involved in and practice singleness of mind in your daily life. 
So let me see what questions you guys have here about this mental discipline of right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. Let's start off with a question from Nick. Teacher David, in regards to the four aspects of right effort, would you say a beginner um, would need to apply a right effort to develop an ongoing meditation practice? And uh, is, is, that, is that something that um, you would recommend? Yes, that's part of right effort because in order to start meditating, we have to eliminate the unwholesome quality of complacency. And we have to arise this wholesome quality of practicing concentration or right concentration. So that's part of the right effort. That's why all of this is right there in that same grouping of mental discipline. So every beginning practitioner, as you embark on this journey, you're going to need to develop your meditation practice. And that's part of that right effort. Thank you, sir. You're welcome. I also had a question related to right effort and particularly the first element of preventing unwholesome mental states that have not arisen from arising. That seems to me to be a challenging one because we may not be aware of it if it hasn't arisen. And is that what right mindfulness is all about, however? Uh, yes, that's part of right mindfulness. But let me give you an example, James. You know, say like you've never thought about having a, a relationship outside of your current relationship with your wife. And let's say you're out with a bunch of friends and someone's like, hey, guys, let's go over here and do this, so forth and so on. And, you know, you know, it involves flirting with other women or trying to entice women to go out you know you've never thought about that that's not something that you would even fathom and you just know like all right guys I'll, I'll see you later you know have a good time or whatever you choose to do however you skillfully practice to not go forward with that that would be something that you know that you don't do and you would prevent that from ever arising in the mind so there are certain things like that that you're not currently doing and you haven't thought about doing but if you were ever confronted with it you just know like that's not something i'm going to get involved in at all so to some degree it's a matter of having discretion you'd say all of these teachings of the buddha are built on what we call discernment wise decision making with wise decision making we learn all these teachings in this wisdom and then we use wise decisions in order to practice them skillfully I also noticed with right intention, there was a element of renunciation and non-ill will. And of course, those are very related to breathing mindfulness meditation and loving kindness meditation. So I was wondering what relationship is there between right intention and meditation? Does meditation provide right intention or is right intention, does it come before meditation essentially? All of these aspects of the path are really working together as a comprehensive, cohesive life practice to move the mind in the direction of enlightenment. And there's a lot of things that you could connect one to the other. But if you look at them as individuals, uh, steps that can be really helpful so that you make sure you're penetrating each individual step and the wisdom that's there and you're developing your practice of each individual step in detail and purifying each individual step but looking at the connections it can also be helpful too but it might actually serve to be a bit confusing in some cases but yes with breathing mindfulness meditation you're actually practicing all eight steps at the same time 
when you're meditating. Right view, right intention, right speech, right action. Well, livelihood is your livelihood, but right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. So you'll see that's why breathing mindfulness meditation is so profound and it has such a impactful result when you do it even for 10 minutes or 20 minutes or 30 minutes. The ideal would be 30 minutes or more, but that's why you can finish a meditation and just be like, wow, that was so impactful to the mind because you're practicing the entire Eightfold Path all at one time in those 30 minutes or whatever amount of time you choose to do. And I'll suppose that it shows an example of what our life may be like if we follow the Eightfold Path all the time. Yeah, as you progress on this path, and even sometimes people at the beginning, when you're in meditation or at other points in your life, as you're developing this path, you might get little glimpses of what enlightenment is like. People can experience these little glimpses of enlightenment, and that can show you the potential that your mind has to experience this peaceful, calm, serene, and consent mind with joy permanently. So if you're in meditation or you're outside of meditation and you notice a few seconds or a few minutes or a few hours of complete peaceful contentedness, joyfulness, where you don't need anything in the world and you just are completely content and joyful with just the way things are. That shows you that your mind has the capability of attaining enlightenment, but because the mind is unenlightened and there's still these conditions that are polluting it, that period of time will change. It will fade away. So you will experience, you know, maybe a couple of minutes or a couple of hours or maybe even a couple of days of contentedness and then boom discontentedness will arise again but through practicing this path you will widen that time more and more and more where you'll experience longer and longer durations of that peaceful calm serene and content mind with joy where the mind is just satisfied with what is we have a question from adrian is there ever an instance in right effort where we should discuss or confront someone with an issue? How do we know when to let something go or to deal with it? This is a case-by-case basis. There's going to be situations where you need to talk to people and you need to help people see, especially if you're like a boss or a parent or something like this, where you need to help people observe certain things that are problematic and that need to be improved But when you do so, you should also always do so with these eight steps, with having right view and realizing that any discontentedness that arises in your mind is as a result of your own craving, desire, attachment. So if you're thinking to confront somebody because they made you angry, that's not right view. They didn't make you angry, right? If somebody was yelling and screaming and harsh at you, okay, maybe they shouldn't have been doing that. But your mind got angry because it was craving for everybody to talk polite to you. So with right view, we're not necessarily talking about what's right or wrong. We're talking about what caused the mind to be discontent. It's that craving for permanence. So if you're going to confront somebody or talk to somebody about any particular issue that's in the household or at work or what have you, it's important that you really reflect on what it is that you're truly planning to talk with this person about and make sure that you're not going to talk to somebody about something that you're actually causing yourself where there's going to be situations where maybe you're working in a team and one person's work product leads to your work product and you need them to be able to improve the delivery of what they're doing 
And if you do that with right intention, right speech, right action, and all the other aspects of this path, it will result in beneficial results for you. So just be sure that you deeply investigate and reflect on what it is that you're planning to talk to somebody about and make sure that it's not something that your mind is causing itself because then you're going to be talking with somebody about changing their behavior in order for you to not have anger, but that's not what the real problem is. And that's what we're used to doing in the past when we're off this path. But once you have this wisdom and you can reflect, you can then be sure that you're talking to people about things that are truly meaningful and that really are part of things that they need to improve in order to perhaps improve your work product or the functioning of the household or something like that. And by doing that with a calm mind, you'll be better in those conversations to talk with your family or your coworkers about certain things that need to improve in order to improve the functioning of this unit or this team or this group, either at home or at work. I noticed, David, in the book that you mentioned that in addition to right, we can consider using the word kind, such as kind action or kind speech. I was wondering if you could expand on that and what that means for our practice in the past. Yeah, sometimes when people think about right speech or right action, the rules come to their mind. They think that these are rules, particularly if they have trained in other teachings or other traditions where there were rules or commandments or things like this where people were made to feel guilty if they didn't do certain things. So when you see the word right speech, you might think that that kind of comes to rules, but you can think of that as righteous speech, you know, speech that isn't going to cause harm to others. But you can also think of it as kind speech as well. And by thinking of it as, you know, kind intentions and kind speech and kind actions, this can produce a way of thinking. Whereas if you kind of blank on the five factors of well-spoken speech and you just think of kind speech, then this can be kind of like a shortcut just to get you started in a situation where maybe you're having challenges remembering the details of something like the five factors of well-spoken speech. But as you build your practice up more and more, you will need to ensure that you understand those five factors and you practice all five factors of well-spoken speech. But there's these kind of like shortcuts that I share in the book as a way in case you're conflicted or maybe your mind is uncalm or you're not quite sure what to do. Your mind can kind of just think, oh, kind speech. Okay, let me do that. I know what that is. And then this will help you to practice in times where maybe you're feeling a bit pressured and you can't really think about the five factors. But as you progress more and more and you practice those five factors, you won't even have to think about them because they'll be so ingrained in the mind that you'll just always be practicing it all the time. Thank you, David. Those are all the questions we have. All right. So just to kind of give you guys an overview of what to really focus on at the real beginning of this program, because I'm going to be going from today on and I'm going to be sharing additional chapters in this book. This book has 24 chapters and then there's some additional content at the end of the book. But right here, this particular slide really shows you what to focus on right here at the beginning of your practice. So if you screenshotted this or if you wrote this down, even though we're going to be talking about things like eliminating fears and 
We're going to be talking about the consciousness evolving from animal to human. We're going to be talking about all different kinds of topics as it relates to the path to enlightenment and the Buddha's teachings. It can be quite a lot as you progress in this seven-month program. But in terms of what you should be developing moment by moment and day by day is looking at the three universal truths and really deeply learning, reflecting, and practicing those, as well as the Four Noble Truths, the Eightfold Path, the Five Precepts, which we're going to be talking about in two weeks, developing your meditation practice, which we do on Wednesdays, and we're also going to be talking about in Chapter 11. And then as you're developing all of that, the mind is going to move into the jhanas over a certain period of time. Everybody's a bit different, but if you develop this practice really well, you should observe that the mind moves into the jhanas. And then from there, that's where you would focus on the 10 fetters. So even though there's a lot of content in this book and in this program, if you can focus on just these things, this is what a beginning practitioner would really focus on and really refine this. So as you learn these talks in the live classes or on the podcast, these are podcasts, these are classes, these are chapters that you'll probably would be interested to read more than one time at the beginning that you would like to uh, really refine, that you would maybe ask questions about, that you would maybe schedule personal guidance sessions to ensure that you're really clear on these topics. These are the ones to really focus on as you get started on this path. And then even though we're going to be covering additional topics as we go forward in this program, you can participate in those and you can continue to learn those. But just know that these are the real core teachings that you would like to focus on. And it's common for people to go through this group learning program and then take it a second time or a third time or more to really soak these teachings in more and more because each time that you participate in one of these talks or you read a chapter more than one time, you're going to be soaking the teachings in more and more and then be able to build up your practice more and more. And always remember to never ever give up because the other option here is to go back to being angry and frustrated, irritated, annoyed, and just always being discontent at different times in your life where this is the escape. This is the way to get away from discontentedness. If you've always wondered why the mind is angry or how to get to a peaceful existence, how to have better relationships with personal relationships and professional relationships, the Buddhist teachings are going to share that with you not as rules, not as commandments, but as a better way of life. And you'll be able to see the truth for yourself because as you independently observe the truth and the teachings and acquire this wisdom, the condition of the mind will be gradually improving and you'll see that improvement so you'll know that you're on the right path. The overall eightfold path can really be summarized in this particular version of what I did for each individual section. I covered wisdom, moral conduct, and mental discipline, and I summarized each one of those at the end. Well, this particular slide summarizes the whole thing as kind of like a little cheat sheet to help you observe the Eightfold Path from kind of a high level. And everything we talk about in terms of the book and these classes and so forth goes into all the intricate details, but this is kind of like a high level view of the Eightfold Path that we've already discussed. 
And this image of the Eightfold Path can really help you to visualize what you're working on because you are working on developing this wisdom throughout learning and practicing these teachings. You should be focused on this moral conduct and the Buddha encouraged people to focus on that first and then developing this mental discipline. But as you're developing your moral conduct, you can be meditating, which is part of mental discipline. You can be building that up as well, but be sure that you're focusing on all three areas of the Eightfold Path and that you see these as individual dials that you're tweaking more and more all the time. And you're not practicing one, mastering that and moving on to the next one. You're actually practicing all of this at the same time. But if you'd like to really refine it and focus on just one core set of teachings, it would be those ones that I shared previously and specifically the moral conduct. That's what the Buddha suggests. So let me see if there's any remaining questions as it relates to the Eightfold Path. We have one question that just came in from T. Right concentration is so hard to do, especially when life with a baby is super busy and lots of things to notice. So how can we do this when taking care of a baby? All of these teachings are going to be a challenge for you, T, especially when you're just starting out. It's not easy, but it's not difficult either. So what you do is you start at the beginning and you just gradually work your way towards practicing it more and more. So I remember when my son was young as well, and there's lots of different things, right? It's the baby's awake for an hour or two hours and you're exhausted and you would like to get sleep yourself, but yet you've got to prepare food for them. You've got to take care of their clothes. You've got to do so many things as part of parenting. So what you do is you try to carve out little parts of your life where you just can do kind of little things little by little and build up your practice. So maybe what it is for you is maybe you just carve out doing some meditation and that's just one thing that you start doing is just practicing meditation and trying to just even get five or ten minutes a day that you just focus on that and just doing meditation and then you do that for several weeks and you start noticing that the mind becomes a bit more peaceful and you're handling the situations in your life a bit better and you start carving out more and more time for yourself so you got to do this very little and increment it little by little and as you go think of the buddhist teachings as a ceiling of what i just shared is like the ceiling that's what an enlightened being would be practicing but you're somewhere below that and you're gradually working up towards it and as you do it's going to be a little bit of a rocky road sometimes but you gradually work up towards the ideal and just carve out parts of your life to dedicate to learning and practicing these teachings as you are on sundays joining these classes and sometimes on Wednesdays, and then gradually implement little pieces from this program into your life little by little as you go throughout your days. Thank you, David. Those are all the questions we have for today. All right. Well, I'll thank you all for joining for this class. And, you know, after covering the Eightfold Path in three individual classes and a lot of depth, this class can feel like, wow, you covered a lot in such a short period of time. And that's because the Eightfold Path is so comprehensive and so detailed. And that's why I actually cover it at the beginning in three separate classes. 
this is meant to be more of an overview and kind of a refresh and a reminder of what we've already talked about because hearing this more than one time is really important to help you develop your life practice. So feel free to reach out and get help with any of this that we're discussing in this entire group learning program, particularly the Eightfold Path, because you're going to need to learn this backwards and forwards, right, left, like the back of your hand. And that's why I offer these personal guidance sessions. That's why you can post in the Facebook group. That's why you can send me private messages. You can ask questions on Wednesdays and on Sundays as well, where we can ensure that you have time to ask the questions that arise in the mind. So feel free to reach out. That's the only way that you're going to get clarity on any of these particular topics. Next week is a smaller chapter. It's chapter six. It's called The Middle Way. The Middle Way is a very simple teaching. I think it'll probably take you all of about 10 minutes or so, 15 minutes to read that chapter. Because now that we've gone through chapter three, four, and five, which are really meaty chapters, there's this chapter six to kind of give the mind a bit of a break. So this week, you can be focused on learning the Eightfold Path and implementing that more and more. And then there's the middle way for next Sunday that we're going to be covering. And that's just a little bit of teaching that actually applies to the Eightfold Path as well. So between last week, this week, and next week, you kind of have this period of time to really soak in the Four Noble Truths, which is part of the Eightfold Path, and the Eightfold Path. And then we're going to kind of refine the understanding of the Eightfold Path by talking about the middle way next week. And that's a really short chapter and a really kind of minor teaching, but can have a really profound effect on the way that you practice these teachings and other aspects of your life as well. So next class on Sunday will be about the middle way. And then this Wednesday is going to be the first class in a four-part series where I'm going to be introducing you to Buddhist chanting, helping you understand how that's been used in the past and how we can use it today to benefit us if you choose to actually learn and practice Buddhist chanting. And then I'll actually share the chants with you and the translations of them, and I'll help you learn them little by little by little and build up your practice if you'd like to learn Buddhist chanting as part of your life practice. So I'll see you guys either this Wednesday for Buddhist chanting or next Sunday when we talk about the middle way as part of chapter six. Thank you all for joining today's class. We'll see you in a future class. Until then, have a very lovely rest of your day. Sawadee Thank you for listening to this podcast. To provide support for this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha. To access more teachings, visit buddhadailywisdom.com. There, you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Remember to establish a daily, consistent meditation practice, along with learning and practicing these teachings. A well-developed meditation practice is the foundation in which to train the mind to attain enlightenment.